Welcome to uh, Lathia Church. My name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks for being here with us this morning um, on this. I think the humidity this morning is over 100 somehow. Um, like my paper like is wet. I don't know if it's like going to drop water or not here in just a second, but appreciate you guys being here uh, with us this morning. If you have a Bible, go ahead and please turn it over to Psalm 91. Uh, that is where we are going to be this morning. Uh, one of the things we really value as a church is the Word of God. And so uh, if you're new with us or you haven't been here um, more than just a couple of times, what you'll notice is that uh, every time we preach, we open up the Bible and we teach directly from Scripture because we believe that what God has to say about anything is way more valuable than anything I have to say. And so uh, as you're turning over there to Psalm 91, if you don't have a Bible, we have a few up here on this little welcome desk. Feel free to grab one. Uh, that is our gift to you. We would love for you to have it. Uh, so while you're turning over there, uh, 2020 has been crazy, amen? amen? Right? Just, I mean, I'm, I'll be 35 this year. Um, this is easily the strangest and weirdest time period I have ever experienced. And I'm old enough to remember 9-11 and have walked through that season. And 2020 has been far stranger uh, than even that time period. But um, I usually get concerned uh, just like on a on a human level, uh, when I see people kind of use terms like these are crazy times we're living in, or this is this is uh, 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 the scariest uh, time to be alive, or or whatever whatever you know the the terminology may be, I think the media in particular uses terms like unprecedented and other big words in order to use hyperbole to describe the reality that we're we're living in and that we're facing as human beings. And the question I often ask myself is, is that always true? You know, is this the most important election of our time? Is this the most important season we'll ever deal with? Uh, or if you're a sports fan, right, is this the, the best team that's ever existed, right? You, you hear terms thrown out like that all the time. And I don't always believe that to be true. Um, for example, I don't believe that every single thing we experience, both good or tragic, is the biggest experience or the most difficult thing we're ever going to walk through uh, as a human being. To believe that would be kind of like being like a young child who has not experienced enough of life uh, to be able to weigh in on the magnitude of a minor inconvenience. Let me, let me give you an example, okay? And anyone that's got kids is going to immediately understand that your kid will be crying or screaming about something and then you go to find out what they're upset about and you're like, oh, that's why we're crying? Oh, you know, like, like this past week, right? I was getting ready to leave the house and I hear my son Josiah crying from the back room. And Jackie's with him, so I'm kind of like, that's weird. Like, you know, normally mom is like a comfort. It's kind of weird that he's crying. So I walk back there into the room to see Josiah, just, I mean, crocodile tears just streaming down his face. And I see Jackie laughing. I go, this is good. Because by the way, just so if any of you don't know the dynamics of my house, Jackie's the compassionate one. So if she's laughing, I know it's going to be fantastic. So I walk in, I'm like, Gideon, what's wrong? Well, he, I mean, Josiah, what is wrong? He can't get it out. I mean, he's like snot, like just coming out. And Jackie goes, well, he found out he's not old enough to drink beer yet. <laughs> right. But for, for Josiah at age five, he has a solid 16 years of waiting, right? He can't even fathom that amount of time. And so it is the biggest tragedy his young life has faced up to now. 
Now, the reality is, is Josiah has epilepsy and has spent days upon days in the hospital, but he doesn't remember it, right? This is why experience is so valuable and that oftentimes when we use terms or our emotional response to something is that it's the worst possible thing we could possibly experience, right? Oftentimes we're caught up in the moment, but we're not caught up in the reality of the actual situation itself. And so how often, right, are we, right, most of us around here, right, adults, would we say we're walking through a season of trial or suffering or persecution? And as we walk through that, we've walked through trial, we've walked through suffering, we've walked through persecution before, and yet as we walk through it currently, we respond in a similar fashion to my five-year-old son finding out that he's not old enough to have a beer. That we struggle to differentiate between the reality of how terrible the situation actually is and the reality of our suffering. And I'm not even discounting for Josiah his genuine, well, it is kind of funny, right? <laughs> but he's genuinely hurt that he can't experience it. Just like you or I may actually be walking through suffering, but is our response to that the proper response. And especially if you would consider yourself a follower of Jesus here this morning, is our response to that suffering indicative of the hope that we have given to us in Christ? Because here's, I mean, here's the reality, because I, I said this earlier, 2020 is actually crazy. Like the times we are walking in are literally crazy. Right? We're experiencing a global pandemic. We're experiencing an economic recession that may pass what we saw back in 2008. There's political and social unrest across the entire country. And there's really, to be honest, and this is the scary thing for me, no foreseeable end in sight right now. It's just like, yeah, we're just going to do this for forever. And it's going to be great. It can be a difficult time, not including any possible personal suffering that you may be experiencing on your own or inside of your family. But this is why I think Psalm 91 is even more timely and important to us right now than it would normally be. That Psalm 91 can be a great comfort to us in a season like the one we are in right now. And yet, I'll be honest, when you read Psalm 91, it's also going to present an interpretive challenge to us in light of suffering that we have to be willing to be honest with ourselves when we look at the text because Psalm 91 is a psalm of both protection and shelter for those who have trusted in God. And what more would you need in such a time as this than shelter and protection from the God who created the universe? It's like, hey, we're in the middle of a global pandemic. Things are really hard right now. I want God. I want God to be the one who is speaking to me, who is loving me, who is leading me through this time. And yet we do know that if we are in a season of trial or suffering, that it's hard to see God as our refuge and our fortress and our shield and our deliverer and our protection. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, does suffering nullify the promises of God? Are his promises of no value to us if we are in the midst of suffering? 
So let's look at Psalm 91 together. Let's process it through. Let's process through it together this morning and see what we can learn. I want to start by looking at just the first two verses of Psalm 91. The psalmist says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And so the first thing I want us to see as we're looking through this psalm this morning is notice the intimacy that the psalmist is going to have with God, right? Notice the the relational capital that he has with God. Look at the language here. The psalmist talks about the safety of dwelling in God. He uses terms like dwell, um, uses terms like abide. And if if you're unfamiliar with those terms, right, that language denotes a language of resting and remaining, And if you notice where he rests and and remains, he says that he rests and remains in the shelter of the most high and almighty. It's kind of like, hey, when things are going crazy around me, I hang out at God's house. (laughs) I'm hanging out with dad because I know him. I know God, and that is where I run to when things are bad. There's an imagery of closeness here that can't be fabricated, right? Because the psalmist is intimately in touch and knows God, right? He's able to share with us this close relationship that he has with God and how he knows God deeper, right, than many of us would claim to know the Lord. Right? The psalmist says that he rests and remains in the shadow of the Lord. Right? And as I was reading that this past week, and I think this is going to actually hit home with us here this morning, right? shadow for a lot of people, that sort of imagery is not going to make a ton of sense. But we live in Florida where the sun is always 9 billion degrees on us at any given moment. Right? So the shade or the shadow of a tree is going to provide to us refuge from the, from the oppressive heat that exists. Right? How many of you guys are excited that we picked early in the morning to hold church outside so that these trees would pre- be providing shade for us, right? Even though it still feels like 102 out here, right? Better than 120, right? That the, the shade or the shadow of that tree, right, provides refuge for you from the oppressiveness of the heat. In the same way, the psalmist shares with us here that he seeks protection from what threatens him most and that that protection is only found in the shadow of the Lord. He continues to talk about that intimacy as he calls God his refuge, as he calls God his fortress. Right? See the beauty there? You miss it if you read through the psalm quickly. But notice what he calls God. He doesn't say God is a fortress. He doesn't say God is a refuge. No, what does he say? God is my refuge. God is my fortress. See, the beauty here is that the psalmist is saying, this is my God 
He is for me. He is mine to run to. He is mine to receive protection from. Not in an ownership sense, but in a relational sense. He's not saying that he owns God and that God responds to him like a genie in a bottle. I think that oftentimes when we are in the midst of suffering or trial or persecution, we run to God, but we treat him as if we have ownership over him and that he must respond to us because he's beholden to what we say or do. And yet scripture teaches us that there is this intimate closeness between those that know God and God himself that allows for a bold request before the Lord, not because we own him, but because we have a relationship with him, because there is intimacy there. Let me give you another example of how this works out. Right? Any of you guys that have ever worked in the children's ministry, and my poor son Josiah, he's all the examples this morning. Right? But any of you that have ever been with him, if you ever meet my son for the first time, you don't actually see him. Right? Because we'll walk up and we'll introduce Josiah to a new person, and this is what he does. And then he gets behind mom and dad like this. Because he's super shy, right? And and typically in any new social setting, he gets very, very nervous very, very quickly. And for him, Right? He feels safer and he feels protected being in the shadow and protection of mom and dad. And so he places himself behind us because we will be able to protect him in some way, shape, or form. He doesn't do that right, demanding that I, as his father, dad, get in front of me and protect me. That's what you're supposed to do. Well, technically, yes. Right? But he falls in and falls underneath of my shadow of protection because he trusts me, because he knows me, because I, as his father, have been there for him in the past and have protected him. And what the psalmist is sharing with us in Psalm 91 is, I've been through storms, I've been through trials, I've been through persecution, and I have placed myself under the protection of my God, and he has been there for me the same way that a father is for his son. That God is his protection from the storms of life for those who know him. Guys, God longs for you to know him this intimately. He longs for you to trust him in any given circumstance. And when the craziness of this life and in the world around us swirl, he longs for us to seek protection and refuge in him alone because he is a good father who wants to protect his children. We might say that what we see in these first two verses is that truly knowing God leads to intimacy with God, which leads to an ability to trust him and his promises, even in the midst of suffering and persecution. I think so often we want to try to reverse engineer protection and refuge with the Lord, but we don't want to include intimacy and trust with him as a part of that equation. 
We want God to be some sort of mercenary that we hire in the midst of trial and suffering, but who we ignore when things are going well. And the psalmist is sharing with us, actually, if you truly know God, if you walk with him, if you have a closeness to him, you see his promises come to fruition and your trust in him will grow. And as that trust grows, so does the protection you receive from him. And so as the psalmist shares with us the beauty of this intimacy, of this walking with God and knowing him, what we start seeing then is that intimacy leads to a greater knowledge of God's promises. And in knowing those promises, a greater hope and trust in him. Look at verses three through six. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler, and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. As the psalmist developed intimacy and closeness with God, he began to rest further and further in the promises of God and what he would do for him. He says that God will deliver you from the snare and the deadly pestilence. This means that, that that there are people and things that will try to thwart you at times and that God will protect you from them. He uses the term, the deadly pestilence. This would be environmental attacks, right? Meaning, I don't know, a global pandemic, right? That God would protect you in the midst of that, that he will take you out safely from those situations, right? I love this next term. He says that he will cover you with his pinions, right? And that under his wings, you will find refuge, I don't know how familiar uh, a lot of you guys are with scripture and descriptions of the Lord, but I love this particular illustration here because this is actually a maternal illustration, right? Most of the imagery used to describe uh, the character and nature of God throughout the scriptures is paternal in nature. But one of the beautiful things I think if you study scripture enough is you see that all the way back in Genesis, God creates man and woman in his image. And what we need to understand about that is that because God has done that, men and women both uniquely display the character and nature of God. And what God says is so beautiful here is, hey, when you are in the midst of of suffering, trial, persecution, the way that a mother would cover her young in a nest with her wings is the same way I will protect you. Because both men and women display the character and nature of our God. And so we see that, that God is delivering. We see that God is covering. And then we see that his faithfulness is a shield that we can trust because he will block us and protect us from our suffering. And we can have confidence that we will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow, nor the pestilence, nor destruction. 
The question is, is do you know God so intimately that this kind of deep abiding trust, even in the most horrific of conditions and circumstances, is true of you? Do you know God deeper than, yeah, I went to church some as a kid growing up and I know some stories about him. Do you know things about God or do you know God? Because there is a difference. I grew up in a home where we went to church when it was convenient and as long as travel soccer wasn't occurring that weekend. And then when I hit college, and became the author of my own self-destruction and my own problems, the storm began raining down on me. My own self-inflicted misery grew, and there was nothing there to shield me from my own self-sabotage. And yet God, in his grace and his mercy, revealed himself to me And I didn't just know things about God, but I began to know him. And as I began to know him, I began to trust him. And as I began to trust him, he became trustworthy. And as he became trustworthy, the storms, the suffering, the persecution, and the trials of life, no matter how horrible they may have been at times, began to seem less burdensome because I knew that ultimately God would rescue. Trust is a hard thing to earn. And when you lose trust, it's even harder to gain it back because trust is a belief in the reliability or the truth or the ability or or the strength of someone or something to come through and be reliable. It's where you actually... believe that something is going to come through. A silly kind of anecdote would be here is if you ever watched the Washington Redskins, and that's going to be their name probably for like another two days. But if you ever watched the Washington Redskins, who happen to be my favorite professional football team with me, they could be up 30 points in the fourth quarter, and I'm sitting there miserable. And Jackie always asks me like, why are you so negative? Because I have zero trust in this team. They have displayed to me consistently for 20 years now, they will lose. If there is a way, they will do it. Right? They have displayed consistently a lack of reliability, right? A lack of faithfulness, right? And they have been unworthy of my belief and trust that they would do differently. But the beauty of what we see in Psalm 91, as the psalmist says, is is actually quite the opposite. He says, as I have walked with God, as I have experienced the trials and temptations of life around me, God has not proved less trustworthy, but more trustworthy. That when I was not able, God was faithful. And he's inviting us to ultimately trust in that same God for refuge and deliverance from whatever life may throw at us. 
right? In verses seven through 13, he goes on to list a bunch more promises in the character and nature of God. He says that 10,000 would fall before him. That's the largest number that they would count up to in the Hebrew. It would be like saying billions today, billions and billions fall before him, that God repays the wicked for their evil. He goes on to say that no evil will be allowed to befall him because of his hope in God and that people would know that it was God who protected him because of the evil that was going on around him. And then in verse 11, and I love this one, right? Angels will even help you from stubbing your foot on a stone. Ultimately, the psalmist shares with us, we can trust God because God is trustworthy. He says, look, I know him. I've walked with him. I've been with him. You can trust him. And then when you get to verse 14, you see a shift And it moves from the psalmist declaring God's trustworthiness to God himself declaring how he will protect the psalmist. Look at what he says, starting in verse 14. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him with long life. I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. If you look there in verse 14, right, there's something really, really beautiful that God says. Because he holds fast to me in love. That word for love in the Hebrew there is on par with the Greek word agape or agapao, right? And there's, there's various types of love described throughout scripture. There's emotional love, there's erotic love, there's brotherly love. And then there's this, the word that's used here, which is a different kind of love from all others. And it's a, a self-sacrificing complete trust. And what we see here is that God says, hey, because... He knows me because we love one another. Because I am his father, I will deliver him. I will protect him. I will answer his call. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and I will bring honor to him. Now, how many of you guys, if I told you, if you just love God and know him, These are the promises that God gives you. This is what God promises to you. That you would see him, that you would know him, that he would protect you, and that you would be protected from anything life might throw at you. How many of you guys would sign up for that protection? Six of you, nice. Almost all of you, right, would throw your hands up, especially if you were in the midst of a a trial or suffering. Okay, I want that. It would be foolish not to sign up for that. But then reality sets in, right? Because many of you guys here know God in this way. You know God intimately the way the psalmist does. You've walked with Jesus and you know the Lord. And yet you also know that walking with the Lord does not mean that you have a pain-free life. 
And so how do we reconcile these verses then? How do we reconcile the hope that the psalmist gives us for those that walk with God and yet the reality of our lives? Because as I read Psalm 91, I'm given great hope. And yet I'm going to go home today and I'm going to open up my news feed and I'm going to probably see anything but hope. How do I reconcile these things? How do I read Psalm 91 and not take it out of context and misapply it? And then when I face suffering or trials or persecution, become angry and embittered with God because life is hard. How do I avoid that? Because the reality is, is I don't know if you guys even noticed this or not, but when Theo was reading to us earlier, verse 11 for, I, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Anybody recognize that verse? That's the exact verse Satan uses and takes out of context when tempting Jesus in the wilderness. Right? He says, hey, throw yourself up off of this building and he will protect you. He will send his angels concerning you. Meaning it's easy to read God's word and see promises of protection, to see promises of God as a refuge and a fortress in the midst of suffering and temptation and trial and say, well, wait a minute, where is God in the midst of all of this? Why is God not showing up? Why isn't he here? How can I be sure that God is for me even when everything around me is not good? How can Psalm 91 be true when everything is so bad around me? And so I think there's three things that we need to consider in order to understand that the promises of this Psalm are true and can be reconciled with our reality in life, right? So three things. So if you're a note taker, this might be when you wanna start writing some things down. First one is this. God can be our refuge because he promises that he can deliver. Right, Psalm 91 promises that God is able to deliver all throughout it. Right, it, that entire Psalm is just one big giant promise that God will protect us and that he is our refuge. But notice how he doesn't promise a lack of suffering or trials or persecution. Now he's saying that God is present with him in the midst of those things, right? The psalmist isn't saying, hey, because I follow God, I have everything I've ever wanted and I have the car I dreamed of and the house I wanted and the spouse I dreamed of and the children I wanted and I have the perfect retirement account and I have the exact degree I want and I get all the grades I want and I never fight with my friends or my roommates or my family. My life is always perfect because I know God. That is not anywhere in that psalm. I don't find any of those promises in that psalm. What I do see is the psalmist saying, in the midst of my suffering, in the midst of my trials, God delivers. Sometimes God might deliver him after the trial is over. Sometimes God might deliver him in the midst of trial, but we see that God is his refuge and his deliverer. 
not the magic genie in a bottle that protects him from any difficulty in life. Think about it in this perspective, right? Think about some of the famous biblical characters we read about throughout scripture, right? We just got done studying the book of Acts together. How many times is Paul suffering persecution and trial and suffering? Dozens. Dozens of times we see Paul suffer. One of the things we didn't even get through as we continue through the book of Acts is that Paul on his way to Rome is shipwrecked and yet God protects him and delivers him. Now, I would imagine that going through a shipwreck in the first century because a storm was crazy would not be your idea of a fun way to spend your day. And yet God delivers him even in the midst of trial. Some of you guys know people that God has supernaturally protected at times. My pastor told me a story one time of uh, a gentleman who was in Vietnam when he was there during the Vietnam War. And this guy was a missionary in uh, Northern Vietnam. And while he was there, the Vietnam conflict broke out. And so one day he was on his, his way to one of the villages in Vietnam. And while he was traveling there, he, fa he faced a roadblock from the Northern Army. And there was a car, there were two cars in front of him and like two or three cars behind him. And he said, as he stood there, uh, sat there in his car, he's like, I don't know what to do, right? And it was clear that there was some sort of tension getting ready to build up in that situation. And he said, he began to pray and God said, get out of here. And so he turned and drove into the brush and just took off. And as he turned off into the brush, right, fire broke out and explosions happened all around him. And he found out later that the other people who had sat there by that blockade, right, two of them had passed away in the gunfight that had broken out. Right, this doesn't mean that God will do this in every situation, but that in that particular situation, God delivered him to get him to the village to continue his purposes. I think so often our issues with the word of God, specifically maybe even something like Psalm 91, is our issue with God's promises are not that he cannot rescue us, but we don't believe that we should have to suffer. Right, we, look, we look at this psalm and we say, oh, God, God's gonna sign, if, if I follow God, I get to sign up for a pain-free, trial-free life. Yeah, sign me up. And we believe that's what God is offering. And that is not what Psalm 91 is offering. Right, what, God, what God offers us here is rescue from the suffering in ways that we probably cannot even imagine. I love what David says in Psalm 27, right? Look at what he says in verse 13. He says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. He's saying in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trial, I believe that God can deliver me 
in this life and that I will see it. He doesn't say that God will always keep him from suffering. No, he says, I believe that God can deliver me. Some of us would do well to remember what Paul says to Timothy. And we're gonna study uh, Paul's first letter to Timothy starting, starting in August and then move into the second letter probably sometime in January. But in 2 Timothy chapter three, right, Paul is writing Tim, to Timothy and, and what he's trying to do throughout these letters to Timothy is he's trying to tell Timothy, this young Christian leader who's uh, planning new churches and providing leadership to these churches, hey, how do you run the race well and live for God your entire life? And look at what he says in verse 12 to him in chapter three. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I've always said that teaching people to come to Jesus and to follow Jesus and that everything will be perfect with you if you do is a really, really terrible way of inviting people to respond to the gospel because that's not what God promises. God does not promise a life free of suffering, but he does promise that he is our refuge. Right, as John Calvin said, they who wish to be exempt from persecutions must necessarily renounce Christ. But in the midst of suffering, we can know that in the sovereign will of God, nothing comes to pass that God is not in control of, including our suffering. But those that know him we are promised that he is with us and that he will eventually deliver. That is the promise he gives. And so God can be our refuge because he can deliver and he promises that he will. The second thing I think we need to understand to be able to reconcile Psalm 91 with reality is this. Suffering and pain are often the training grounds that God uses to teach us that he is the only refuge worthy of our time and attention. Suffering and pain are often the training grounds that God uses to teach us that he is our only refuge worthy of attention. All right, think about what Paul says in Romans chapter eight. Let me read this to you, starting in verse 18. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from the bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. 
For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And then listen to this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So here's what Paul is sharing to the church at Rome. Suffering is promised in this life, but it's not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. All of creation is groaning out to be set free is what Paul says. I mean, think about that. The bondage and brokenness we experience by design actually points us to our need for liberation, not from anything that this world has to offer, but something that God has to offer. And then Paul says, ultimately, God takes the pain and suffering of this world and makes us better for having experienced it than we would have been if we hadn't. The suffering of the early church as we saw in Acts led to its expansion. Without the suffering and persecution that the early church experienced in Jerusalem, they may never have left that city. The suffering and persecution that Christians experienced at the hands of Paul then led to Paul being converted on the road to Damascus by Jesus himself. And then in that, right, Paul experienced persecution time and time again as he went from city to city, planning new churches and sharing the gospel. We can look back on the sufferings of the people who faithfully proclaimed the gospel in the early church and see that their suffering led to its expansion, but was also for their good because they experienced a deeper and greater joy in Christ. This is why Paul can say in Philippians that he counts everything as loss except for the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. Everything that he's walked through has led him to one conclusion, God is better than anything else because he's experienced the type of intimacy with God that the psalmist talks about here in Psalm 91. And that only comes through walking through difficulty and trial. Some of you guys can even sit here and think about a time on your own life where you walked through a difficult season and on the other side of it, you came out from it, you saw how God had rescued you and you were better for it. I think about one of the young men who helped us start this church. He was one of my roommates and he was a great guy. And when he got here, uh, he was in a relationship and he was engaged to be married. And He loved this woman, right? And she loved the Lord and he loved the Lord. But the longer they were together and the longer they were engaged, the more it became clear, this just, this is not gonna work. This is is not gonna make it for the long haul. And he battled and suffered through that relationship as eventually they decided to call off the wedding. And he was broken in the midst of that. 
Today, he's happily married, and he will readily tell you that that was one of the darkest seasons he ever walked through, but God used it to draw him closer to him, and in the midst of that, he's better able to appreciate and love his wife now because of what God led him through. And that because ultimately, he found his hope in Jesus and not his fiance, he's able to love her more fully and love God more deeply and enjoy life all the more. And that only comes because suffering and pain are the training grounds that God uses to teach us that he is our refuge and that he is our only hope. Because I think about what bigger thing could we possibly explain that suffering accomplishes than the cross itself? Jesus a man, sinless. His only crime that he could be accused of was healing people on the Sabbath day. And could you imagine? Yeah, you've done some pretty bad things in your life, Jesus. Uh, You rescued and healed people that were crippled on the Sabbath day. How dare you? I would love that to be the only charge people could bring against me. Arrested by the very people who had cheered his entrance into Jerusalem just a few days earlier. Unjustly tried at night by the Jewish Sanhedrin and then brought before the Roman uh, tribunal to be put to death. And as he hung there on the cross, what man meant for evil, God meant for good and rescued the human race through the suffering of God's only son. Because suffering and pain are often the training grounds that God uses to teach us that he is our refuge. Last thing that I would just encourage you to see is this. God is able to rescue God uses suffering to teach us that he is our only rescue. And the last one is this. The promise of Psalm 91 is ultimately found only in eternity. It's not found in this life. Look at Revelation chapter 21 with me. This is John sharing the vision of what he sees God doing in the future. And this is what he says. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Guys, this life is simply a prelude to eternity. And eternity is a long, long, long time. And this life is simply a prelude. And in eternity, if you are found in Christ, there will be true protection and true safety, the likes of which you can't even begin to imagine. 
any pain and suffering you experience in this life will seem but a short blip compared to eternity walking with God. Because as John promises, he will be their God and he will dwell with them. My, prom- my, my plea with us is that we would be a church, we would be a people, the people of God who know him intimately like the psalmist does in Psalm 91. And that as we know him intimately, we would cling to the promises of God. To know him more fully. And in knowing him more fully, knowing him as our refuge and our fortress and our salvation. Know him, cry out to him, be covered by the blood of Christ and shielded from even your own sin because of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Trust in his promises to be your refuge and then hope in his deliverance because he is able and preach that deliverance to others. Be so convinced of God's faithfulness that others see it and want to know him as well. As we take communion this morning, I'm gonna go ahead and invite the band back up. And if you didn't already, you can grab communion over here off the table. And during this next song, I would invite you just to have a time of reflection and response. I would invite you to take a moment and think about any suffering you may be experiencing right now. Any persecution, any hardship that you may be walking through. Then I would ask you to genuinely consider internally, have I given this over to the Lord and have I looked to him for my refuge and my salvation? Or am I trying to manufacture a rescue of my own? And if you are, may this be a moment where you would confess that as sin and turn to him. And the beauty of scripture is that God promises that if we only turn to him and trust him, he is our fortress, he's our refuge, he's our shield. And he is our only salvation. Would you take a few minutes to reflect and respond to the promises of God? And in that might your own soul experience a deeper and more a more profound worship of Jesus. And then might you share that with others?